Well, hello all. We are continuing on in our series here and perhaps wrestling with one of the most difficult questions um, that we will cover in this series. Um, by some estimates, this is the most difficult apologetic opponent, which is depression and anxiety. Um, it doesn't take a long perusal of the relevant data to see that we're at epidemic proportions when it comes to depression, anxiety, uh, some of the highest recorded rates of reported suicidal ideation. Um, just, uh, again, it's something that uh, would alarm just about anybody. Now, there are intervening factors, but just to give you a little background into this, uh, one of the most uh, popular series I've ever done for Sunday School um, was some years ago, did depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation in the Bible. And uh, we are actually able to grow. One of the reasons we're in Colonial now, this chapel, is because I was we actually outgrew Legacy Hall, which seats comfortably about 60, uncomfortably about 75, um, maybe maybe 80 if you're really, really packing them in like sardines. But um, it actually got me a meeting with my superiors where they asked, how are you able to grow when half of our congregation drops when the snowbirds leave Fort Myers and go back up north to, uh, uh, to summer up north uh, after the winter months here in Fort Myers? Uh, that's That was unheard of and unprecedented that we actually grew in numbers during a summer stretch run of a series uh, for a pre-church Sunday school or growth class. Um, so uh, this is a, uh, a, a an enormously relevant subject. Uh, I am not a uh, licensed counselor. I am uh, I'm married to a, a wife who's a psych major um, who has a penchant for counseling, uh, credential counseling. Um, uh, I also understand all the foibles and pitfalls for this sort of thing. I'm not sure you're familiar, but you might be. Uh, with the general biblical model of Christian leadership, which is the prophet-priest-king model. Uh, and that means every Christian leader in some way um, is expected to have a proficiency uh, in the three areas of leadership. Uh, the prophet would be the proclaimer of God's will, the knowledge and expression and, and proclamation of the word of God. That would be the, the, the pure preaching part um, for vocational ministry. Uh, the priest uh, part would be the more one-on-one, two-on-one, or family counseling or good, wise biblical counsel, which we can't use that word because it's a charged word now. You need credentials to use the verb counsel or legal credentials to use the word counsel. So we have to say um, strong biblical advice. Uh, that would be the, the priest. And then the king aspect is uh, moving a group of people, uh, organizational leadership in a direction for the kingdom of God and for his purposes. Um, and no Christian leader is good at all three. That's where having a really solid staff comes in, where you can make up for the other two areas of deficiency. So some years ago, when I was asked to uh, increase my my <laughs> priestly role, uh, the 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 good, wise, biblical advice, or what used to be called counsel uh, role here, I was extraordinarily insecure. Um, uh, the idea of somebody placing my hand on their hand on the rudder of their lives was uh, daunting, to say the least, for me. So I did what I only know to do, which is to read as much as I could on the subject of counsel. I knew that when I went to counsel, I had a skepticism about their ability to diagnose or give me a prognosis or a prescription of what I should do. 
and I knew that what I'd want is somebody that was connected uh, and had good content uh, and uh, had those those experiential milestones to show that there's practical benefit to what they were talking about. This is one of the reasons why the old adage, there's always more bad counselors than good counselors or, or therapists, good bad counselors, bad therapists and good therapists out there. The two main reasons for that is they don't keep up with their field, they don't have good content, and maybe most importantly, they don't practice what they preach. Um, nobody's looking for perfection, but if you're going to pontificate on what's going to repair a relationship and you can't do it in your own, you know, again, you're you're hearkening back to what the Word of God says about these sort of things. So, um, uh, so look at the what what the psalmist says in Psalm 77, um, and think of it as a cry of help from a friend or from yourself. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your your face from me? Um, the Bible is replete um, with uh, with uh, these sort of uh, laments and cries. I've said it before, I'll say it again. In the Psalter, the song and praise and prayer book in the center of the Bible, the Psalms, there's 150 of them. 50 include disappointment, lament, and crying for God. Uh, our holy book, as part of its inspired corpus of 66 books, includes a cryings book, lamentation. Um, but there are all sorts of intervening issues uh, as I introduce this. One, uh, that you might be aware of is not wanting to turn the gospel proclamation into therapy. Uh, we don't want to turn the, the 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 incentive to come to God through Jesus Christ into living your best life now, um, a relentless selfish pursuit of your own individual happiness. Um, there are all sorts of issues with modern happiness versus ancient happiness and uh, modern quote wisdom versus ancient wisdom. Uh, what the ancients used to call eudaimonia was a different kind of happiness, a more substantive, whole life engaging happiness rather than what happiness is today, a sort of sensate intensity of pleasure that's localized, quick, and disconnected from other areas of your life, you know, like my team one in baseball. We also have issues with regard to diagnosis. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to see that uh, there's been a uh, so much downside to the ubiquity of internet access and uh, the, the flood of information. We now have a new problem, and it's vetting proper information and proper authorities. Um, plus, we have a, a, a culture that at least gives lip service and pretends to be relativistic. But everybody knows that it, it's an issue to go online and diagnose yourself, WebMD. Um, the issue is there's so much information and so many symptoms connected to others that you end up diagnosing yourself as having far more than you actually do have most of the time and give yourself massive depression and anxiety. Well, the same thing goes with mental mental health issues. Um, uh, it doesn't help that we you know we live in a culture that, uh, that that's never had a higher propensity for envy. Uh, Self-pity and victimhood are the moral heroes of the day. So um, not just saying that you're having localized unhappiness, but any sustained unhappiness, displeasure, hardship, hard work, or discomfort or pain um, usually reflexively gets us to do a self-diagnosis of saying depression, depression. So we'll talk about more definitions and that sort of thing. But the, the, again, the, the problem with self-diagnosis in an internet age is, is palpable. Um, it, it's a big, big issue. And I don't think, I used to think it was just the, the medical community trying to protect their jobs, but it's more than that. Because there's so many symptoms indirectly or directly connected to uh, different particular problems, uh, and people desperately want a validation 
of their uh, their victimhood or their their self pity or their you know or, or what they're going through. Um, uh, I'm not sure hypochondria has ever been higher. So there there, there are issues, and there's obviously bigger meta issues uh, when you take the, the the you know the divorce rate uh, that's that's dropped a bit uh, over the past uh, two decades, but it's still too strong for my for my blood um, as far as too too high the percentage seems to be too high even at, at 33 to 34 percent a third of marriages ending that way um, you take uh, again the the increase in negativity in the media the massive polarization uh, going on culturally uh, even religiously in some quarters the uh, uh, the, the, the decline and fall of some Christian leaders and paragons of, uh, you know, heroes, modern heroes of evangelism and theology. And um, there are, there's a lot, uh, you know, political problems and pressures, uh, economic ones. Uh, <clears throat> so it, it, this is a big issue. It goes again without saying these are fly, this is going to be a flyover. Even this that we're going to split, we've decided to split this into two sessions instead of just one. Um even when I did a shortened version of this, uh, it was still six to seven full one-hour, seven sessions over seven weeks uh, when we did it for Sunday school years ago. I'll probably refilm that and get it out to you and uh, and update it. But uh, it was the the, ba- the basic thesis uh, for that session or those sessions: uh, uh, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, depression. Um, and the Bible and the interaction with the Bible is this. A lot of times people don't know what to say when people talk about these uh, uh, psychopathologies, uh, uh, cognitive issues, uh, uh, psychological issues, um, mental health issues. Uh, So they just say, pray and read the word, which is actually great advice, but it's too vague and it's too general. There are actually, what, what I argued for in there is there's actually principles in the word about not only how to pray, what to pray, when to pray it, and in what way to do it, that really actually have a a, a, a an evidenced uh, uh, side that you can see the evidence for this being something God's even given to non-believers through common grace or general revelation that have worked out really, really well. Um, uh, and so we explored those sort of topics uh, as, as a topical move through the study and talked about things that are that are even seen to be social and individual maladies or psychopathologies that even the even the most lost secular psychologist or academic would agree with the word of God to say this is just not good. Um, so uh, so with that, like I said, it's a rather long intro. We wanted to talk a little bit uh, about uh, the first task of what we're calling definition and distinction. Uh, anxiety and depression are related, but they're not identical. Uh, and interestingly enough, the scriptures don't indicate or uh, delineate uh, between anxiety and depression, and th- they are different. Um, uh, there is a, a diagnostic manual of disorders uh, referred to in an acronym, the DSM-4, which is the, the, the current version, I believe, of it. Um, uh, there's a, a, a diagnostic manual or di- dictionary or encyclopedia of psychopathologies uh, approved by the American Psychological Association. Um, but a general way of describing depression is a sorrow, a sadness, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of abandonment and loneliness, an overall sense of loss that characterizes an individual and usually affects his or her functionality. Uh, 
it, it could be called, it usually lasts longer than an intermittent episode. That would be one of the ways to distinguish it from just a general sorrow or regret. Uh, some put it this way, a series of losses, mental and physical, some of the, 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 the results of a depression that you would, that would, you would uh, look at the symptoms and, and reason back to an actual uh, clinically uh, approved syndrome or issue that's with you in some sig- more significant way than periodically is a series of losses. Mental and physical energy and motivation are lost. Um, the loss of ability to feel pleasure, the loss of appetite, what they call a fog of fatigue. Um, so again, some of these are a little bit closer to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, the dsm 4 but, uh, but there are multiple causes of it. Um, but I think it's probably good to stop right here and just say, what sort of Bible characters can you think of that would be classified as this kind of depression? Um, this kind of, uh, uh, you could call them depressed in a way that would match this particular description. Um, uh, how about uh, David in Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you store up, or will I store up my anxious concerns within me? Agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemies dominate me? Consider me an answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Um, uh, uh, You don't, you can say that David had bouts of depression. Um, Now, some would argue and say, no, these are localized sorrows. Uh, he also had a great joy about him as well. Um, you know, again, uh, all three of the major monarchy kings, Saul first, who has an arc of improve, improvement, increase, and then, and then down. David has an arc, and so does Solomon. Um, but listen to what David's saying, restore brightness to my eyes. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So this is more of a, again, a, a fog um, uh, a, a series of losses. It gets even more intense when he describes his enemies, which probably include Absalom, rising up against him that he can't directly respond, doesn't want to directly respond to them. Um, you could look at Saul as well, um, uh, the first king of the Israeli monarchy uh, when the people demanded a king anointed by Samuel. But with Saul, we have this very interesting demonic intervention as well um, where David uses uh, music uh to soothe him and to calm the expressions of uh, demonic oppression or possession, um, it's hard to get which one that is there uh, out, of, out of Saul. Uh, it, it, it mollifies or softens that sort of thing. How about Naomi uh, in the Ruth story um, who says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means bitter. I want to actually be called bitter because I'm so upset by how my situation is going. Uh, maybe the paradigm example that I think is one of the strongest in the Old Testament is Elijah. After his, uh, you know, his confrontation with the, uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, uh, Elijah clearly, clearly, clearly uh, is, uh, is expecting, it looks like he's expecting a full overthrow, a revolution, uh, the government with Jezebel. And that doesn't happen. And even though he gets, again, uh, the rain, his, his prediction of, of the, the drought being over, and the what was likely a, a lightning bolt or a meteorite uh, hitting and, and just basically burning up in, in no uncertain terms, uh, the sacrifice there on the mount there, 
and uh, and then him capitally punishing all the the, the uh, prophets of Baal that have been likely doing human sacrifice as well as uh, dishonoring God and breaking breaking all sorts of Israeli laws as well as they've been put into power by Jezebel. Um, he goes and flees Jezebel and says at one point that he wished he'd never been born, uh, that he despaired of life itself as God comforted him. Uh, very, very interesting type of comfort. It was an actual food provision, uh, bringing him food. And uh, so it was not just that he was on the run in a foreign country and that Jezebel wasn't overthrown after her prophets were and the drought was over. Um, now why is he running after this great victory? So it was an up and down thing. And, and again, a, a lot of depression comes when certain strong, powerful expectation or expectations, a series of them are dashed. Um, Job would be considered uh, uh, a person that I think we could call under this de definition of depression. Jonah uh, as well, I mean, for goodness sake, Jeremiah, his entire book of cryings called Lamentations. Jeremiah, I think we could we could put him uh, firmly in this category. Um, some other ones you might not have thought about, though. Paul, you look at Second Corinthians six, Second uh, Corinthians eleven, Second Corinthians twelve. Uh, you know, uh, Paul's like, I I would like to die and go on, but it looks like there's more gain for me to stay around. Uh, Jesus, Jesus. Um, and there was a, a really strong suggestion from one of our uh, one of our one of the people in class um, a couple weeks ago that you know if we're going to make a distinction which we're about to make here between anxiety and true fear we need to make a distinction between true godly sorrow and depression and I think one of the main distinctions would be how some of, some of the symptoms aren't the same um, uh, when you're truly sorrowful sometimes you don't have appetite there, but there's not a, a general loss of appetite for a long period of time. Um, uh, you know, so some of these uh, are really, you know, um, when you're sorrowful, you're not always fatigued. Um, you don't have a general sense of hopelessness or being alone, loneliness. Um, but I think probably the biggest distinction between authentic uh, sorrow and clinical depression would be the, the it, its lingering effects, not just the particulars, of the uh, of of uh, of the symptoms, but the lingering and, and the time frames involved. I think that's a big a big difference. But think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where we get the perfect prayer, the perfect prayer. We get a fully honest Jesus three times. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thine. And fully obedient. Maybe the perfect model for prayer there. But Jesus being so stressed out that the capillaries under his skin burst, and he's sweating blood on his forehead and, and, and probably some, somewhere around the face. Um, some other notable people that have uh, done incredible things for Christianity, C.S. Lewis uh, struggled with depression and described it, especially given, you know, he lost his mom early on and that was one of the catalysts for him to move over from, uh, uh, from a, a, a sort of nominal theism, Roman Catholic Irish theism to atheism. And then losing Joy Davidson after marrying late in life and thinking that that whole lane for him had shut down, the marriage lane, uh, and raising her child. Uh, Teresa of Avila, maybe the biggest one on this list that uh, has some real, real issues. Um, she's Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Um, her uh, official approved uh, biography is filled with honest, 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 uh, just dark nights of the soul. 
where she questioned God's existence altogether. Um, now remember, what was being put before her eyes was something very, very difficult for us to understand, which is the, the worst kind of neglect and the worst treatment of the poor anywhere in the world. Um, and, and a religious political uh, matrix that made it a virtue for you to ignore or mistreat the poor so their karma's worked out and they get a better afterlife in their next life. But Teresa, uh, Mother Teresa, was extremely, um, uh, extremely prone to doubt, to, de to deep depression, and questioning God's existence and his, his mercy because of all the negativity she experienced over and over and over again. In some ways, plundering her soul by never placing anything else before her eyes except hardship, struggle, persecution, pain, and, and hardship, and largely being ignored or at least persecuted by the humans in the area um, that should have been helping her. Interestingly enough, when she died, if, I don't know if you remember, in the same time frame as Princess Diana, um, atheists, uh, Hindus, and Christians all showed up at her funeral to pay her homage. Um, she was extremely, extremely influential that even people across the board religiously said there was something great about what this woman did. Um, even some of the people that made her life very hard by uh, making her move around, uh, not stay in the same place, uh, making her rent go high, that tried to stop her from helping the poor because that was immoral uh, in, in, in that part of Calcutta under Hinduism, um, showed up at her funeral and were there to pay their respects. John Calvin uh, described going through depression. Uh, John Wesley, well, um, well documented his depression. Charles Spurgeon wrote books about uh, it, how he dealt with his depression as one of the most, uh, arguably one of the most famous pastors that ever lived. Uh, one of the guys I wish was my mentor now uh, over at uh, Talbot Seminary and Biola University, um, their uh, distinguished professor of philosophy there in apologetics, J.P. Moreland, uh, whose incredible book is in your bibliography in the handout uh, called Finding Quiet. Uh, John Piper has admitted to going through this, uh, probably related to his son's very vocal atheism uh, and disdain for the Bible and his dad's lifestyle. Um, but all of these, all of these struggled with significant depression. Um, you could make a, a case that at least, you know, pre-Reformation or even during Reformation, pre-Reformation in the process of the Reformation and the hiding that Martin Luther uh, struggled with depression, certainly anxiety. Uh, but listen to these general uh, general scripture passages on this subject as well. Proverbs eighteen fourteen: A person's spirit can endure sickness, but who can survive a broken spirit? So you see, the proverbs talking about not that your spirit's physically, you know, or, or even metaphysically broken, but that there is some parts that that I I can remember somebody years ago saying, "Would you rather have a broken leg or a broken heart?" Now, in a in a in a culture that continues to deny the spiritual or the supernatural. There may be a flippant, quick answer to that, but I can tell you this. I'd much rather have a broken limb than a broken heart. Uh, so a broken spirit is, is a, a metaphor here for someone who feels despair and despondency. Uh, Proverbs 23, 16, and 17, My innermost being will celebrate when your lips say what is right. Don't let your heart envy sinners instead always fear the Lord. So you see here the, the author of Proverbs saying, my innermost being will celebrate 
uh, when your lips say what is right. So there's a there's something that brings your spirit up when truth comes to you and, and you encounter truth. But we also know that the he's, he's instructing uh, the reader here to not envy sinners. That you can that envy is a significant issue related to uh, some of these uh, some of these d- depression symptoms and, and things of that effect. Um, now anxiety very quickly um, an overcoming sense of fear. This is a definition of anxiety, an overcoming sense of fear or worry for possibilities in the future. Um, Some would call it an illegitimate preoccupation, moving toward obsession, affecting your functionality. Um, Now, again, this is to be be distinguished from functional, good, positive fear, which usually responds to an immediate threat. So the difference here is anxiety has no real reason to be there and thus it is more difficult to deal with. It does affect your functionality. Um, sometimes they call people like this with mild anxiety hand ringers, uh, helicopter moms and dads. Um, very, very difficult. Uh, in some ways, Jill, Jill, my wife deals with some anxiety. I wouldn't call it clinical or syndromatic, but, uh, but we learn at our parents' knees sometimes, the more influential parent, if they happen to be worriers, I can remember they would call me uh, sometimes when I go out with my buddies and we'd play cards or something. They called me Shaky Joe because I didn't want to b- blow my money on you know on something that I thought would re- I would later regret. Uh, but let's put it this way: if if you're coming up to say I seventy five and you have a legitimate fear that you could die because if you step out on this road, there's a chance a car's going to come and you won't be able to dodge it. That's not anxiety. What anxiety is is waking up in the middle of the night being afraid about I seventy five. Um, uh, we get the, we kind of, a related issue is phobias, uh, phobos, an irrational fear of something, uh, you know, arachnophobia, uh, you know, uh, kleptophobia, you know, uh, so there, there are all sorts of, uh, phobias and anxieties that, that sort of thing. So again, um, if you can start thinking about anxious Bible characters, uh, you know, barren women like, uh, Sarai, Rebecca, Hannah, uh, Joshua, you can call Moses anxious or depressed. There's times where he's like, you know, just go ahead and kill me. <laughs> so you can say he had anxiety, clearly had anxiety uh, from the from the jump. You know, I'm like witnessing a miracle, but I'm not a very good speaker. Do you know, are you, you sure you're picking the right guy, Lord? Uh, you know, Joshua, you know, taking over the mantle must have been really, really strange. His mentor and uh, guide, his compass was not going in and many of the people he had, come up with and grown up with that were authority figures over him coming out of Egypt. We're not going into the promised land and he was. Uh, lots of anxiety when you're moving in and you have a divine mandate for conquest uh, for very specific groups. Um, uh, but yeah, barren women as well uh, that you have uh, across the, the biblical corpus. So, um, the you know, the causes of, uh, of anxiety uh, can be sin. It can be a lack of trust in God and trust in others. It can be a lack of knowledge. Usually that's connected. Anxiety is connected to a lack of knowledge or at least a lack of, uh, of, of broadening your scope of reference. And we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get into solutions. But, you know, usually you're not, uh, you, you know, it comes from an obsessive compulsive maybe streak in someone, not necessarily a syndrome, where they obsess and focus on one thing over and over and over and over again and it's usually the worst thing and they don't take into account intervening ideas or qualifying ideas and we'll talk about that in our next session um, but uh, but you must know that that doubt 
and anxiety um, or depression and anxiety can actually cause doubt. But it can also work the other way. You know, a deep-seated doubt that's not engaged and not fought. That you know, I told you one of the one of the worst things to be if you're doubting is lazy. Doubt can be devastating to a lazy person, but actually, doubt can be a positive thing when it moves you to overcome it and become more confident. And that's true in any area, not just your faith. Um, but doubt has a two-way street. Depression and anxiety can cause doubt, and doubt can cause depression and anxiety. And it can start what's called what some uh, Christian therapists have called the doubt spiral, where you spiral down. Some of the technical, one of the technical terms in the psychological literature is downstacking, downstacking, where you keep stacking negative ideas in increasing intensity till you get to a point you never thought you'd be, which is just basically the genealogy of any sin in your life. You get to a point where you're entertaining ideas you never thought you would because you haven't stopped yourself. Um, and arrested those thoughts that stacked down to suicide, uh, to uh, running away, to nuking or deep-sixing all your significant relationships. So when we return next week, we'll go over depression remedies. Um, again, this will be really, really short, uh, a basic overview. Um, uh, you know, we'll go over some anxiety remedies, um, and we'll talk about those uh, <clears throat> uh you know, just so in case you don't want to hear the second session, um, you know, significantly strong love relationships, starting with God and then other people, actually is is a is a really great way to fight uh, depression and anxiety. One of the first things a therapist will ask, even if they don't really understand the Bible, also accounts for this sort of thing, is what sort of strong love relationships exist now, uh, even if you happen to be away from the alpha relationships like parents or siblings or things like that, or you haven't had those, or even strong friends, um, you know, what, what's there. Um, you also have a, a, you know, a progression in, uh, in getting over these things. They're usually, it's one of the hardest things to remember in discipleship, but authentic change usually comes slowly. In fact, the quicker the change, uh, the, the least, you know, the, the more skeptical, you know, more skeptical we are about it or the more, uh, you know, we look askance at it. We just kind of don't, we're not sure. Um, this is particularly important when it comes to discipling and walking somebody into greater and greater uh, vistas and uh, from glory to glory uh, in in a repentant, uh, kingdom-oriented, God, God-honoring God lifestyle. Um, I, 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 this is huge. Um, but you can, you can also see a progression, uh, a progression of these things where people move from thing to thing. Um, and this is particularly important to remember as Pentecostals. Uh, for Pentecostals, we have this penchant for triumphalism. We only talk about the good stuff and raise our, our, you know, our scepter up and our crown and go, we are the champions, we're going to win. We also uh, believe, uh, again, without biblical warrant, that uh, if we ask God in, a, in the right, if we put the words in the right order, he will deliver us immediately from something, which just isn't true. Uh, generally speaking, God pulls us through things with him because those tend to teach us far more significantly than deliverance. Uh, again, we don't call things down in ourselves, but we certainly don't uh, uh, act like you know that, that God either owes us or he'll give us the immediate solution every single time. That's just not the way it is. Um, uh, but you have love and joy and thanksgiving, prayer and really in worship as well. Um, some of these, again, there needs to be meat put on the bones here. 
but uh, you know, with this progression idea, you know, there's, there was a, a, a friend of mine who was a therapist talking about getting his wife over her phobia, her anxiety about dogs, because he loves dogs, he loves them. Um, and he said he got her over it by starting first with puppy videos, then going to visit puppies, then watching, uh, you know, I think the, the, the guy, Cesar Chavez, the dog whisperer, the trainer on TV and following that series and progressively moving her to a point where she didn't have a phobia of it anymore, but it was an over years thing um, because she'd been attacked when she was younger. So again, a progression, um, but doubling down and significantly investing in the, the love relationships you already have, uh, you know, already have, have already in which you've already invested. Um, trying to find joy catalysts in your life that are different than just just intermittent happinesses. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, Thanksgiving, uh, prayer, and then worship. Uh, prayers set to music or melody are huge, absolutely huge. Um, I, I was talking to a skeptic years ago who said, I envy you guys because when you, we just can't replicate this. When we have a song we all know, like a Journey song or, you know, or a Boston song or something, it just doesn't give the same reported results that you do for a true worship or praise session. Um, now, I know you guys, and, and, and the fact that we're not pursuing it just for the benefits it gives us, but I think you could, again, you could describe true worship as you finally stop focusing on yourself which is part of a, a you know a sinful self-centered uh, pathologically narcissistic lifestyle what we call sin um, and actually giving adoration praise and focus to a being worthy of this kind of adoration praise and focus uh, you know slowing down closing your eyes singing and worshiping and shouting about things that are really important and really worth getting getting emotional about is you know part of a great worship experience a and the word being spoken the word being prayed, the word being uh, uh, thought about, the word being ruminated upon. Um, and let's end here with Philippians 4.4, 4, and, and, and it behooves us to see how we do this practically. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, please hear me. Practical isn't what I've heard some people do in the past. They meet somebody that's depressed. They don't know what to say. And so they say, well, the Philippians says rejoice in the Lord always. So rejoice. You can't command a rejoice thing. It's an indirect thing. Um, but it means you should be looking to find ways to rejoice, right? Not that you can just command it to somebody. Let your gentleness and graciousness be evident to all. The Lord is near. In other words, the Lord may be, you know, a transcendent presence, but he's also an imminent presence. Do not be anxious about anything. Easier said than done, Paul, right here. But in every situation, by prayer and petition. So praying and including petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Why? Because you're at least saying you believe he exists and that he can answer your prayer. Now, again, the qualifier I'd add here is don't just do petition. It says prayer and petition. Paul includes one of the five basic prayer types because when your prayers are dominated by petition, it can actually have a reverse something going on in you. What do I mean by that? You just remind yourself of all the ways God hasn't answered you and you can actually bring on anxiety and and, and the onset of depression as well. And then what happens? Then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it goes beyond your ability to describe or explain, will guard your hearts and minds, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this is how Paul says to rejoice in the Lord always. Um, make sure that you're gentle and gracious and let that be evidenced in your life. Remember the Lord is near. 
Um, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, asking God with thanksgiving. You never forget thanksgiving and gratitude. We'll talk about that next week. Present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Think, think, think about such things. Focus, concentrate, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So remember, this is another one of those classic Bible passages that says there's a responsibility on your part. Effort has to be exerted, but the Holy Spirit can support you. God gave you the ability to choose. He can, he can empower you to do this. You're not on your own. It's not just a knuckle-down thing. But there's, a, there's some things you can do to engage the Holy Spirit this side of eternity in a fallen, compromised reality. So whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, put into practice, uh, and the God of peace will be with you. We hope to see you next week. 